Welcome to the Satiated Podcast, where we explore physical and emotional hunger, satiation, and healing your relationship with your food and body. I'm your host, Stephanie Mara Fox, your somatic nutritional counselor. This is going to be an amazing conversation today with Sarah Dosange. After struggling with binge eating disorder and episodes of bulimia for more than a decade, she has gone on to specialize in helping others recover from binge eating. Sarah is a psychotherapist and author of the best-selling book, I Can't Stop Eating. Sarah trained in transactional analysis psychotherapy and completed her eating disorder practitioner training at the National Center for Eating Disorders and is an accredited member of the British Association for Counseling and Psychotherapy. She is also the co-host of the Life After Diets podcast and has a popular channel on YouTube, The Binge Eating Therapist. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive in with you today. And I think a great place for us to probably start just so that we all have a similar language understanding that we're using is how have you defined the difference between binge eating and overeating? Because I think a lot of individuals are often confused on what the difference Mm -hmm. is between those two behaviors. First of all, one thing I always say on this subject is that everybody overeats sometimes. Yes. Everyone, people who don't struggle with food, who have a really comfortable relationship with food, will sometimes eat more than they're comfortable with and they might regret their food choice. So binge eating takes it to another another level because it is eating normally quite a lot of food in one go but the most distressing part is that it feels like you've completely lost control. It feels like you have no control over what or how much you're eating. So it's a compulsion. So I would use the term binge eating and compulsive eating interchangeably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a great identification of everybody overeats. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I even like to also often add on that everybody even emotionally eats at times that, That you know, this is a part of normal eating. And when we're talking about binge eating, it's often this isolated, very intense compulsive experience that feels like you just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And even like something, let's take depression, for example, you can have clinical diagnosable depression at one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end of the spectrum, it can be you have experienced depression at one point or another. And it's the same with binge eating. It exists on a whole scale from uh, maybe just occasionally having these episodes to it's taking over your life. It's day in, day out. And now it's an eating disorder for you. Yeah. And I know that when individuals are navigating patterns of binge eating, it feels really hard to stop. And so I'm wondering what you discovered on your journey and those that you work with was kind of the tools that were the most supportive that helped begin to diminish this behavior and its frequency. Mm -hmm. I think to begin with, everybody tries to stop binge eating by trying to stop binge eating. (laughs) Like the brain can convince you you've been struggling with this problem for years, but in one day you can turn it around. So the amount of times I swore I was never going to do it again. Mm. And I actually had a pretty unpleasant experience. The first round of therapy I did, I did CBT therapist therapy Mm -hmm. and the therapist, I saw her for seven or eight weeks. And I think it was on the seventh week. I I'd done everything I was told, Stephanie. I was like the client that was compliant and anything she told me to do, I did because I was so desperate to find my way out. But after seven weeks, my binge eating hadn't reduced 
And when I left the session that day, as I was walking out the door, she said to me, um, Sarah, I really want you to try this week. Mm. And oh, that like curtain of shame. Even now when I say it, I've shared the story quite a few times, you know, in various places. I can still feel it how that felt when she said that at the time. And I took that with me for years that I thought mm. the reason I wasn't recovering was because I wasn't trying hard enough. I just felt like I kept failing, kept trying, kept failing. So I think one of the things that gets really misunderstood about binge eating is that people might think it's about a lack of willpower or a lack of discipline. And it's not that you can't just decide. You'll know if binge eating is a problem for you, because actually what you tend to find is the harder you try to just stop, the worse it gets. So I think some of the things that worked for me, well, to begin with, I was confused because we know we see it over and over again that restriction can often be linked with binge eating. If you're restricting or depriving yourself, you can end mm -hmm. up binging. And whilst I'd heard this around, I didn't think it was me because I was never very good at restriction. I meet a lot of people struggling with binge eating who they're quote unquote good at diets. They can follow the diet for a while, but that wasn't me. So I assumed that that didn't apply to me. And it was when I got to the point, and I, I don't even remember if I heard it somewhere or if I realized it for myself, but I thought, oh, just planning to restrict was enough for me to trigger binge eating. Yeah. Think about it. Every night I was putting my head on my pillow after binging and making all these promises to myself about how I was going to eat the following day. And it was always very little food, very specific type of food as well. So if you were going on holiday, for example, tomorrow, Stephanie, you could think about it today and feel excited, like you could have that excited feeling in your body. And I think it's the same with that planning to restrict, always planning to go on a diet. I think, I think it's very likely we're having these biological responses as our brains are anticipating restriction. So I was in this cycle over and over again. So I found that once I let go of the restriction part, and that was a lot of that was tough because moving in and out of that and letting go of pursuing the weight loss that I so desired. But once I did let go of the restriction part, my binges really decreased in their intensity, but I still had a bit of a tricky relationship with food. There was still a lot of emotional eating going on. And, you know, as you said, we all emotionally eat sometimes. And I, I think it's really important not to demonize emotional eating. But for me at that time, it had got to the point where it was so much, it was becoming the main way of trying to manage my mood. And that was becoming problematic because it was actually having a negative impact on me now because of the amount I was eating. So then that became a lot of work around um, undoing the black and white, all or nothing thinking, giving myself permission to have all my feelings, connecting with my body and how I experienced the emotions in my body, lots of surrender, I'd love to give this sort of perfect plan out to say to people, do these four steps and then you can never binge again. But it's it's a messy journey and it involved yeah. a lot of diving deep, shall we say. Yeah, I love that you're normalizing that. It's especially when it comes to healing your relationship with food. It's not this linear, just do these steps and you will get the most perfect satiating relationship with food that you're looking for. I even find that on this journey, it's normalizing that when you have those impulses, because it's not necessarily that those impulses just magically disappear to go reach for food to self-soothe. It's learning also how to sit with them and normalize that those impulses aren't just 
they're going to keep showing up. Yeah. And that you get to actually learn from them. Like, even when you said that therapist said to you, like, can you try Oh, like my eyes started to even tear up a little bit that someone said that to you. Cause this journey is so not about willpower or trying hard enough. It's so much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more on the emotional eating side of things. I think for me was drawing that line between what was soothing and what was numbing. I had to stop the numbing because that was hurting me longer in the long run because the numbing was for me it was about just wanting to almost obliterate myself and just escape and shut down and check out of life and and all of those things and and that feels very different to me to I don't know you've had a long day and you want to kick up and you want to relax and you want to eat something really delicious and you just want to have that enjoyable experience and figuring out the difference between the two only happened through trial and error and they Mm -hmm. feel different in my body so that desire to numb or to skate would be experienced as a very intense sudden urge to binge and I'd want to eat quick and I'd want to eat a lot whereas me emotional eating if I'm eating something because I want to enjoy the experience of eating it I actually want to elongate the experience and make it longer so if I wanted chocolate for example rather than getting a chocolate bar I would rather have a bag of Maltesers because I can elongate the experience of that Mm -hmm. and that that's how I can tell the difference yeah yeah something that it's oh is this me moving further away from myself and checking out or is this actually bringing me closer into connection with myself and and inside And I love that distinction. I think it's really important because you might even as you're healing, be eating the same kinds of foods in a different energetic state that it's just like, oh, let me get really curious. What is present in my body? Because that is shaping that eating experience. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to work with myself, I think, because when you want to numb and escape yourself, for me anyway, it was because. I had I couldn't just sit down and watch TV because I'd have a voice in my head going, you really should be doing this and you haven't done that. And why haven't you done this? And you didn't do a very good job at that all the time. And the escape part was about trying to shut that voice up. There was something about the, you know, focus on a screen and eating at the same time that was able to create that. Mm -hmm. And so what I found is when I just took a bit of pressure off myself and practiced a bit more compassion and acceptance and rather than thinking, so I thought, Stephanie, I always thought that my my goal in life was to figure out how to be a, a steady eddy kind of person, because I'm always a, a hundred miles an hour or a zero. Like I'm a sprinter. I'm not a marathoner. And I and it's frustrating because when you are a sprinter, you have times where you just want to collapse and do nothing. And I was feeling bad about all that all the time. When I accepted that part of myself mm. rather than fight it. It actually, that's still my temperament to be a bit more all or nothing, but it became more manageable through actually accepting it in the first place because I wasn't in this conflict, in this battle. Yeah, I'm really hearing that actually what was playing out in your relationship with food ended up being a mirror for just who you are in yourself. And going back to that, uh, what you said earlier of the more that you actually think about trying to stop binge eating, the mm-hmm. worse it gets. And that actually it starts with paying less attention to that. You're doing this thing. And why is it happening to begin with? And there was this piece of you being like, I need to accept that this is a part of my personality. And then when that got to happen, 
I'm, I'm guessing uh, like more relaxation got to come online that, mm-hmm. you know, binge eating maybe started to decrease all on its own without even paying attention to it. Yeah. Well, we're very good at, at seeing what the problem is, the thing we want to get rid of. And it's what's the thing instead. I'll often ask my clients, I'll say to them quite early on, what do you want your relationship with food to look like? And they'll say something like, well, I just want to stop binging. I'm like, okay, that's what you don't want. What would you like it to look like? And they'll go, well, I just don't want to be feeling guilty all the time. I'm like, again, that's what you don't want. What would you, and it's, it's, (laughs) I think I have a bit of fun with it really, because it's like the brain just grinds to a halt because suddenly it doesn't know. It's been so fixated on fixing and getting rid of that there's, you know, we don't know what we're trying to create. So I often talk about recovery as a creative process. Mm -hmm. What is it you're trying to create for yourself instead? Because when you start doing the work and you think, I want to tackle this binge eating problem I have, there's part of you that's fearing a loss because the binge eating is probably doing something for you. Mm -hmm. But if you can view it as a creative process of trying to create something for yourself that's incompatible with binge eating rather than fighting with the binge eating, I think you're more likely to get into that balanced, more comfortable place with food. Yeah. And I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, I was so there too. Uh Of like when I was healing my relationship with food, all I would also focus on is like what needs to be fixed. And I think that's such a beautiful reframe of when you're in that process of healing, starting to shift the attention of, well, what do I want to bring in? What kind of relationship do I want to build and create for myself? I love that because then it goes into a place of just like you said, like creativity and creation. And that brings in the relaxation response, which sometimes that food behavior is coming in because of feeling tight or tense or contracted or stressed out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to anyone listening to this, who might be in a dark place with food and might feel like they're so far away from where they want to be think the other thing that our minds might do that's not helpful is think I've got this is going to be so much work right that this whole process is going to be work it's going to be work there's so much to do and it's going to be this long uncomfortable slog and I just want to open up the possibility that even the process itself could be an enjoyable one it could be a process of discovery and getting back in touch with parts of yourself that have been long neglected and realizing things that you actually want and like that you haven't given yourself permission to want and like so I think this can be a really enjoyable journey even though you know the problem itself I get it is so painful and distressing yeah so when binge eating behaviors are playing out like you said before it feels very compulsive And so I'm wondering if there is something that you teach that's kind of, and I know we talked about before, it's hard to put this into steps, but if there's like a, I like to break things down in like bite-sized baby steps of like, what's something that someone could just start practicing at the beginning that might ease their process of starting to bring more curiosity around their binge eating, maybe start to even experience the binge eating in a different manner. Sometimes it's still doing the binge eating, but more embodied. So I'm curious what kind of you, where you would start someone. Yeah. So to start with, I'm a big fan of connection because I think people really struggle to find compassion for themselves when it comes to this problem, but it's, it tends to be easier to find compassion for someone else. Right. So most of the work I do now is in groups. And what happens in the groups is that people are able to feel compassion for other people who are 
struggling with the same thing as and they've just done a behavior that they also do and they can feel that compassion for someone else and it doesn't happen immediately but the group starts to act like a bit of a mirror to one another and what the compassion and the connection part does is it helps to reduce the shame we can't change from a place of shame but it's also really difficult to even observe ourselves when we're in that place of shame because we've got our blind spots for a reason you know, the mind will put things into blind spots a lot of the time because it's worried that if you see it, you're going to feel shame. So it's the person, <laughs> I think most people have got someone like this in their life, someone in their life who declares that they're not a judgmental person. And you're thinking, you're actually like the most judgmental person I know out of everyone I know, right? It's in their blind spot because mm -hmm. if they acknowledge that part of themselves, they would feel shame. So until we are able to start reducing the shame, it's hard to actually watch what's going on because it feels like when you're in it, it just feels like this turmoil, this whole confusing mess. And the only solution, the only answer you can come to is, well, I just must be, there must be something really defective and really wrong with me because that's what shame tells us, tells us. So that commitment to trying to introduce that curiosity helps with shame as well, because we're just being curious, just trying to see things here. And so I do often encourage, and I was really resistant to it because I just, maybe I just a bit rebellious, but to do a bit of a journaling. And it doesn't even have to be like sitting down at the end of the day and journaling your day. I think quite often it's more effective to just keep checking in and just put a couple of sentences down because hmm. and I'll, when I'm working with someone, when they're talking to me in a session, they're in a very different state than the state they're in either just before they binge or during a binge or after a binge. So they can't access that part of them in the session. And that's why this curiosity, the compassion, ideally some connection. And even if you're not coming to a group or something like that, there are even things like these sorts of podcasts and other resources out there, hearing other people talking about it can help you feel less alone. And that can do a similar job, I think. So I would say it's noticing first, getting curious, before you put that pressure on yourself to even change anything. We want to rush into changing our behavior rather than getting curious about actually what are the thoughts and the emotions that are behind this behavior? We just think we can just decide to act differently. And we, over and over again, we, we're not managing to do that. Yeah, it takes time. And what I'm hearing is putting into place little things actually in your day that make such a difference that invite in that connection, that curiosity while the behavior is still happening mm -hmm. so that those things might start to have an effect on the behavior. But actually the more that you decentralize, like defocus on that you are binge eating, then you get to create space for what actually needs your attention. Yeah. And often the part that binges, you hate that part of you. You don't want it to exist. Ideally, what you've been trying to do is to destroy that part of you, but it's a part of you and then you become even more split from it. Mm. So I think in the noticing and that trying to welcome in and if you can reframe it and start to see like the binge eating is trying to perform a function, whether it actually is or whether it's become maladaptive, like who knows, but it, it came up out of a way to try and certainly to try and protect you if you are restricting, maybe to try and help you emotionally feel safe and better if you're using it in a more emotional way. Trauma can be another one that can trigger off binge eating. And that really is about trying to feel safe with food. Then you can have a little bit of compassion for the part of you that binges 
and you're much more likely to see things with more clarity and it reduces the catastrophization of the binge when you take that approach. And I think for most, everyone wants to stop their binge eating at the binge. Like I want to stop binge eating by not having the binge. And we see binge eating as a cycle, how you react and respond to yourself and talk to yourself after the binge is part of what sets you up for the next binge. And a lot of the time it's, it's, it's easy. We have more of our, our thinking available to us after the binge mm-hmm. when we're not fighting with ourselves. So how we treat ourselves, what we say about what we're doing next. I think we've got to be really careful with ourselves there but, so that we're not going round and round, continually triggering off the binge eating. Completely agree with that, that sometimes it's actually the practice gets to be, okay, I just engaged in my food behavior. And now how do I not self-abandon and show up for myself now? And I think some of the things that you're even talking about of what to do even before can also happen even afterwards of journal, listen to a podcast, reach out for support, you know, find someone you can talk to so that you bring in that compassion online of you didn't do anything wrong in that moment. You probably weren't even online enough to even know that it was happening until after it was over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was talking to some physicians a couple of days ago and one of the physicians, he's like, I think it's like a type of seizure. <laughs> I've never heard that word used before, but I said, I'll, I'll think about it. But it, it can feel like something switches off people sometimes they say they feel dissociated mm-hmm. um and then there are various types of binges as well there's the really intense big ones that tend to feel more dissociative but they can be also smaller and less intense ones where you feel a, a bit present but not quite but in the moment if you get once the urge to binge strikes and you start arguing with that urge and you're going backward and forward i think what's often happening in the moment is that your brain looks at this problem and goes, well, like we've got a binge here because in theory, this debate could go on forever if we don't binge. And then you binge and finally you've got the relief of that argument that was going on before the binge as well. And I think that's another trick that the mind plays in the moment. It will convince you that this is going to go on forever. You have to do this. You have to binge in order to feel okay. And then afterwards you're confused because you're not in that debate anymore and thinking, why not today? Why did I do that again? Or something more unkind than that. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you have found beneficial to ask the part that wants to binge, you know, cause you're really identifying this is a part of you and we actually get to start to befriend that part of you, not continue to push them away. Like I'm not going to listen to you because then they're, they're still functioning in the background. You're just maybe not hearing them as much. And so I'm curious, is there things that you have found talking or to that part of that person or asking certain questions that have facilitated starting to deepen into relationship with that part? Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that really helped me actually was I started asking myself in those moments, what happens if I don't? Mm. And just seeing what my brain threw up. And sometimes when the binge was more of a habitual binge, because there's an a habit element to binge eating as well that can be part of it and when it was more of a habit that would something would just fall away just with that question and other times it wouldn't other times it would be like a much more visceral like I don't care what happens anyway I'm just going to go ahead and do it and I think sometimes when you're so far in it and it's got you 
it's almost like you go through it, you binge and you come out the other side and then you stop and you assess. Another question that I think can be handy, particularly after you binge and you're in that beating yourself up place, is to ask yourself the question, what is the kindest way of looking at this that still feels true? And the second part is important because people think that self-kindness or compassion is just saying, it's okay, it doesn't matter, everything's Mm going to be fine. And in that moment, that doesn't feel true at all. In the moment, you're thinking, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm a complete failure. I'm disgusting. I'm all these things that go on. Yeah. But the middle ground often looks something like, I binged again and I'm feeling disappointed. And I'm feeling lost with this stuff. And I'm still trying to figure it out. And most people, when I offer that to them, will go, well, yeah, that that actually would feel true. And that's not saying everything's okay. It's acknowledging the hard feelings after the binge as well. And compassion and self-kindness isn't about not acknowledging those feelings. So I think that's another question that I think is helpful. Another thing that I did, again, if you it's only if you can create that gap, because sometimes when you, the urge is upon you, it's really hard to to create that moment, to ask questions. And so, again, I'd urge people to be kind to themselves about that afterwards if they feel like they keep missing the moment. I think sometimes anticipating when a binge is going to come. So let's say your binges always start at six o'clock after work. Rather than waiting till the urge is upon you to investigate it, it's like, can you get out ahead of the urge and anticipate it? So you're sitting there at 5.55, pen and paper going like, right, what's going on and that moving towards it I talk about it as trying to create a different relationship with this urge to binge because if you need the urge to binge to completely vanish in order for you to recover it's like you're always at the mercy if they decide to return and so being able to handle binges and for me again there was a lot of this surrender that went on where sometimes I would just lay down with it and go like come on like I would get almost quite uh, quite aggressive with the binges but like come on then and I would try and another one of these um, tricks, I think they sometimes do it with anxiety, is to try and make the urge worse. So whatever you're feeling, move towards it, try and make it feel even worse. And it's really difficult to do because to do that, you have to accept it and move towards. And I've often found when you move towards it, it sort of morphs into something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do a lot there. <laughs> yeah, I, I love all these pieces that you're talking about right now. I'm just like, like I know people can't see my face, but I feel like I'm just like this little kid, just like, yes, like I love all of these things that you're talking about right now. So, okay. The first thing on uh, adding the piece around what is true. I think that's such a crucial addition because exactly like you said, a lot for a lot of individuals, they think compassion is being, oh, it's okay. Everything's going to be all right. And I often recommend individuals to check out the video by Brene Brown on the difference between sympathy and empathy. And that that's what sympathy is. Sympathy is putting a bandaid on it. Let's just put a bandaid on it. But like the scars still underneath mm-hmm. and that empathy, like what you're talking about is more, let's be in this pain together. And yeah, you feel disappointed in yourself right now. Let's just name that. And then actually, while it may feel simple, just naming something, like you said, it's moving towards it. And that actually it morphs into something else. Even the experience of it starts to decrease in intensity because you're not trying to fight it anymore. You're not trying to make it go away. It's like, this is my truth. This is what's real. And then then the body's like, oh, you're listening to me. I can relax now. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And trying to see emotions as an experience. Because I don't know about you, Stephanie, but I've certainly many times had an experience where I've got this feeling that I really don't like. And again, in that moment, this feeling is taking over and I'm convinced it's going to last forever. This is it now. This feeling's here and it's never going to go. I think our our emotions can be so compelling because they often come with a story. So getting curious in what's the story you're telling yourself about the feeling, because we layer our feelings. So we feel we might feel guilty about feeling angry towards someone. So we're layering it up or we feel sad about feeling jealous because we feel like that's a terrible emotion to have rather than allowing our feelings to just be what they are. So when I started in the way I was talking to myself, seeing it as an experience, because one of the feelings that I do experience from time to time, I have this very existential despair, you know, where everything's hopeless and terrible. And I've really had to work on my relationship with this feeling because it comes and I don't know why it comes. And now I, I take myself to, I'm experiencing despair and I've experienced it before and I've experienced not despair. It doesn't mean that this feeling is actually how things are because that's what it feels like in the moment when the despair comes. It feels like I'm realizing that everything's awful mm-hmm. and, and it's not, it's an experience. So really exploring the stories. I think that's why talking about our stories is so useful that connection part because it helps us to challenge these stories that when they go unchallenged we just think they're true instead of the story we're telling ourselves about the thing yeah that was exactly what I was just thinking was starting to not take the story as a truth or a fact Mm -hmm. it's starting like you've been naming bringing in that sense of curiosity of oh who's saying this story right now and why, why is this story coming in, in this particular moment? And when have I experienced it before bringing in just that even questioning the story so that you can start to view it in a different light. And I also love that you brought in naming when you've even experienced it before, because oftentimes when we're experiencing intense sensations, emotions in the body, it feels like that's going to last forever. And sometimes thinking of uh, experience when you have had that emotion or those sensations before and saying, well, I, I got through that experience and I'm still here just brings in that fresh perspective in the moment of, oh, I, I could get through this again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not shaming ourselves for our emotions. And that's what learning our patterns is about. And that's what I see the work when it comes to trying to understand ourselves the job's never done, right? (laughs) There's always another layer to get to. But the more we understand and the more we notice, the more we can recognize when it's something archaic coming up, as opposed to something that's just a response to what's happening in the here and now. Yeah. And I'm curious if you've noticed with those that you have also worked with that there's this recognition that comes online when you're healing, you know, patterns of binge eating that the journey doesn't end because you are always going to need to be an eater that I think a lot of individuals come in and it's like, I just need to fix my binge eating and then everything in my life will fall into place. Mm -hmm. And actually it's, this is just the first chapter of your journey of reconnecting and deepening into relationship with yourself and that it's, it's an ongoing, never ending process. Yes. So Steph and I talk about this on the podcast. It comes up quite a bit, how we notice some of our patterns that we used to play out around food. We're playing them out in other areas of our lives. It's like life keeps trying to 
teach us something in what it is that we're learning. And yes, I think because sometimes people will say, well, does this mean I'm going to struggle with this for the rest of my life? If this problem never gets completely fixed and solved, because I think for most people, recovery isn't this place that you arrive at. Mm-hmm. And I think when it's presented as such, people just continually feel like they're failing all the time. And it might sound a bit cliche because, you know, I don't know, you can be the judge of this, but that idea of recovery being a process. So the process is the recovery as such. So there are certain things I need to pay attention to around my food. And actually for me, if there's something else going on in my life, one of the first things I notice is I start over-desiring certain types of foods again. Like it's almost like the little red flag for me to say Mm -hmm. there's something else going on here. And sometimes I'm like, really? Like another thing? (laughs) I'm just... (laughs) why is there always something to pay attention to Mm -hmm. I think though sometimes people feel a bit disheartened because they think well if I don't get to a place where this is all fixed you know what's the point and recovery is worth it in as much as I don't have to fight with it every day like I did before and even now when there's a, a whisper of something it's that so there are times when I can something can happen and the first thought I have is of food And because it's so sudden in those moments, like I catch it and it might be a thought about going and getting something. But when it's sudden, I know it's normally something else going on. And how can I put it? It's like that's not me anymore. So it doesn't matter if there's part of me going, oh, wouldn't it be a nice idea to go and get a load of food and just zone out for an evening? There's The part of me now just goes, well, that's not I don't do that anymore. And I think we become so identified with our problems. So for me, that's how, that's the point I would say when I was properly recovered was when I realized this is not my identity anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that fully made sense. It's quite Absolutely hard 100% makes sense. I think it's starting to notice when that part of you that we're talking about comes online and says, hey, go do that thing. That's going to be really soothing. And you're like that. I say red flag all the time too. <laughs> I'm just like, okay. oh, yes, I use that language <laughs> as well. I'm just like, oh, there's my little red flag of some part of me is really needing my attention right now. And it thinks that food is going to be the answer. And so what I'm really hearing you say is actually you are now able to identify that part of you when they arise. And there's space between kind of the reaction and the action. Like, oh, I'm seeing that part of me be there. And now I have more space because I'm aware of where this will go. And that actually it doesn't give me what I'm looking for, that I can respond to it differently. And I think that's an important kind of delineation to make that it's not necessarily that the urge to binge is just going to go away forever, but your reaction to it changes over time. Mm-hmm. And it greatly diminishes in intensity as well yes. compared to the kind of urges that I used to get when I was really struggling with this. It's more like it's more like a whisper or like a background noise or a, why don't you do this? It's like <laughs> years ago when I was a teenager, I, I smoked for a while. So even now, like there can be the odd occasion, like if I have a drink where there'll be a little thought going, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a cigarette now? <laughs> but I don't anymore. And I'm just like, well, that's not who I am anymore. It's that yeah. kind of oh, wouldn't it be nice to? And I'm like, mm, I don't think it would be nice to. I stopped doing that for a reason, both of those things. <laughs> yeah, I think of it as kind of bringing your present day self into the moment that it's 
you have evolved and changed from what those initial little voices and parts of you would tell you to go do to support you in some way. Like even probably, you know, smoking at some point of your life, you did it for a reason. It was maybe supportive at that time of your life. And then it no longer was supportive anymore. And so that behavior and that relationship changed. And so I'm hearing you bring your present day self online being like, oh yeah, we have a lot of maybe really fond memories around doing this. And this wouldn't support me in who I am today. Yes. Yes. And I think one of the crucial lessons that I really learned throughout this process was quite simply, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) I think prior to this, every thought I had, I I assumed was true because that's why I'm thinking it. And once that becomes less true, so even now, if I'm in the emotion and and the story seems really compelling, when I'm in the feeling, I can't necessarily convince myself that the story isn't true, but I can cast doubt on it. I can go, well, this is how I'm thinking now. It may not be true. So I need to, I need to wait with this. Don't make any decisions while you're in this particular story. So important. Yeah. Just to start to question and bring in that curiosity of just because I'm thinking it, it doesn't mean that it's true. And I have seen that even with those that I've worked with, that that's when we're talking about like some of those first initial steps to start taking, I think that's another important first initial step is to bring in that curiosity around your thoughts because at first, yeah, it feels like, well, of course this is me. I'm thinking it. So how could Mm -hmm. it not be me? And I think what, what you're even talking about in kind of parts work identifying more that it's a part of you and you, there are many different parts of you that make up you that once you start to get to know that part of you, just as like, you don't always have to believe everything your family says to you or your friends say to you. It's kind of the same thing of you don't have to believe everything that that part of you is saying to you either. Yeah. And then I think the next level from that was because you know how you can, in your rational mind, know something's true, but it doesn't, You can't feel it. You can't feel that it's true. So there's that split. What happens, I think, for a lot of people, and definitely for me, was then I deferred to my feelings because that that was what felt true and that was more compelling than what was going on in my mind. So especially when thoughts and feelings line up, that's where your absolute truth exists. So the next part that I learned beyond that was don't believe everything you feel. (laughs) I was like, now I can't believe anything. And that can be liberating or frightening, depending on my mood. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I 100% understand what you're talking about right now. It's once you start opening yourself up to that, like, oh, my emotions are maybe coming up because of a reaction of my thoughts. And I don't have to believe what I'm thinking. Then also, I don't have to believe what I'm feeling. So what's true in this moment? And mm-hmm. I think that kind of comes back to something that I even like to offer, you know, even on this podcast is it's just naming what is real. Like, okay, let me describe my environment. Like in those overwhelming moments of like, I don't even know what is true right now. Just like what, what's tangible? Just like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm wearing a pink shirt today. That is something that is tangible. That is something that is real. And that it just, it brings it down into like, okay, all I can go off of is this moment and this moment and this moment. It, it's a really a practice of presence when it comes down to it. Yeah. Well, there's a, I think there's a nuance here between what's real and what's true. Because the feeling is very real. That's what you're experiencing, this feeling. But in terms of what the truth of 
the feeling or what it means, we plonk meaning on everything. Mm -hmm. So there's rarely this one absolute truth of what something means. We get to create that. So there's, again, that just sounds like a lot of responsibility that I'm not sure I want. (laughs) (laughs) And then here comes the binge eating just to be like, we'll make it better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But um, if anybody is wanting to do some of this thought work, questioning their thoughts, do you know Byron Katie? Yes, love Byron so, Katie. Yes, massively instrumental, I think, for me in this work. And it starts by you question your thoughts about other people, which is a lot easier when you're not confronted with yourself. But it was really humbling to do that and to change some of my stories about people in my life. But when you change your story of something, you change your experience of it. And I saw that with people and I saw that with food and I just see that over and over again. So we have a lot of influence over how we want to experience something. It's not to say that it's always easy. And now I almost want to backpedal a bit on that because there's, <laughs> there's real challenges that, that people might be facing. And again, we have to believe it's true. We can't just say, I'm going to decide to make this mean this thing, because if it doesn't feel true in here. So there is something I think about connecting with yourself and there's so much information in the body and we, We cut off and numb and just really struggle to feel connected with our bodies when we struggle with food. Well, I think what you're bringing in is such an important point around the meaning making. Like that is what our brain is here to do. It wants to understand what is happening in the body or in our life. It's trying to connect things and make a meaning out of it and bringing curiosity around that. And then noticing how your body responds to the meaning that your brain is making. And it's like, okay, does this feel in alignment? Does this feel frictiony? Does it feel frictiony? Because actually that is something that feels difficult to look at. That might actually be a truth. I think there's Mm -hmm. a lot of layers that you're addressing here that, yeah, it is really complicated. And that's why, like you said earlier, it's important to get connection, reach out for support, you know, even work with individuals like you that you get to sit with someone and start talking about the stories to then sometimes get support in the meaning you want to make out of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's making me think now of Viktor Frankl, you know, Mm -hmm. man's search for meaning because he talks about the freedom that we have is the ability to choose our response which I think is different to choosing your reaction because we have these conditioned reactions, these emotions that will just hit, particularly if we look at something like guilt around food. Sometimes a person who's struggling with food might eat something, feel guilt immediately before they're even conscious of having a thought about it. So I don't think we get to that place where we can choose our response until we're able to kind of zoom out and become the observer and the watcher. And from that place, that part of us, has the capacity to choose a response, but we've got all these other human responses that are just very reactive that may be beyond our control. Yeah, it's so fascinating how deep this work can go that I know that I often find with those that I work with, it starts with being like, okay, I'm coming in because of this binge eating behavior. And then we're getting to a place of, how do you want to live your life? Mm -hmm. And that it's, I think it's important to make those connections that when you're starting on a healing journey around your relationship with food, it does go to these deeper places of 
where do you feel like you haven't been showing up? Where do you feel like you're out of alignment with how you're living? And that it's, it's all about those baby steps. Like mm-hmm. even we went like, it's really interesting just to even like zoom out and see how deep our conversation went in such a short amount of time of just like, yeah, it starts with this surface level, like what's happening in my relationship with food and wow, it really goes into how is this a reflection of how I'm showing up in my relationship with my life and myself and my family and my friends and da, 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 da. So true I mean I'm thinking now of someone who might say that they binge to manage stress because they're so stressed that they binge and it's I'll say how do I manage the stress without binging I'm like what's the stress what's going on in your life <laughs> like maybe there's something else that needs to be looked at is there an issue in your relationship is there an issue with your job where are you feeling inauthentic in your life that you're feeling stressed where are you not saying no to things because you keep saying yes and taking too much on which can certainly lead to overwhelm this life. So sometimes the binge eating, I think, can be this convenient scapegoat. I need to put all my energy into this problem mm-hmm. before I do any of the other stuff. Or when people delay things and they say, right, I need to fix my eating before I can go for that promotion, before I can date, before I can do this, before I can do that. And sometimes in order to resolve the binge eating, you've got to start doing those things. It's like, I'll fix myself, then I'll go and live my life. And it's like, maybe you need to live your life to find that balance with food. And yes, there's going to be a lot of resistance to that. I can relate to that as well. Absolutely. Because like we were talking about before, your body, your brain, everything is like, no, we, we need to fix this. This is a problem. This needs to be fixed first. And once you do that, then everything can happen. And I flip flop that all the time as well, that it's, oh, actually, if you really start feeling more alive and vibrant in the life that you're living, will that behavior naturally shift and change because it's no longer needed anymore. Mm-hmm. And I love how you got really curious about, well, why are you stressed? And even to bring in, well, how are you responding to your stress of what we were talking about before of, yeah, sometimes we get stressed as people. And like you even said, sometimes it was just like owning, oh, this is a part of me, or this is how I just am feeling right now. And I've gotten through this same thing with the, the scapegoatness of, oh, you know, if I actually don't even make my emotions a scapegoat anymore that I need to avoid them, then it's like, okay, yeah, I feel stressed. And how am I actually trying to avoid just allowing myself to feel that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time with stress, the stress comes from how we're talking to ourselves about what's going on more so mm-hmm. than the thing itself. Yeah. That willingness to go out and live. We want to fix ourselves first, I think, because we want to then emerge as somehow this best version. And I think it's a way of avoiding vulnerability. Mm. Like I don't want to go out into the world, warts and all. I need to fix myself so that I can go out as this stronger, better version of myself. And then I can't be hurt. Then I'm less likely to be rejected and I'm less likely for people to treat me this way. And I think that, yeah, comes to vulnerability, which we can always tie back to Brené Brown again. Because she's the queen of talking about vulnerability, right? There's so many different resources to rely on today. And I want to make sure that we leave time to also, how can individuals continue to connect with you? Where can they find you? Do you have any upcoming offerings that individuals should know about? Yeah, well, I would recommend that people check out the podcast Life After Diets that I do with Stephanie Michelle, who I think has been on this podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Um, We are in the process of building a community. We now do live events for listeners 
where we come together and we share stories and we talk about all this kind of thing in a private online space. Those aren't recorded. I'm also on YouTube. I've got a channel there, The Binge Eating Therapist. You can find me there. I'm on Instagram, also The Binge Eating Therapist there. So any of those channels, whichever one you prefer, you can come and find me if you would like to. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experience and your wisdom today. I feel like there were just so many gold nuggets that came out of this episode, and I'm really excited for the work that you're doing in the world. It's really important and needed, and a lot of individuals are looking for support around their relationship with their food. And so just thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Well, to all listeners, if you have any questions, I will drop both of our emails in the show notes, reach out anytime. And I'd hope you just have a beautiful rest of your day and connect with you all soon. Bye.